The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, February 11th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And it is, can we confirm this, Matthew Dix? It is February 11th? It is February 11th by seven minutes. Right. So we're recording this right after midnight. Matthew Dix, Storyteller Supreme, and I went to a Bruce Springsteen concert in Hartford. Turns out the cheapest place to see Bruce Springsteen play if you live in New York is to drive to Hartford, where parking's only $10. And uh, pretty decent tickets can be had at face value. You know, Bruce Springsteen himself is, of course, a great storyteller, and what he did in concert today was tell the story of the river. He played the river front and back. Led me to a couple couple points that I was thinking about. Point one, Weird Al Yankovic, he's doing pretty well, but if he weren't, he could have a sideline just doing really highly specific parodies like The Liver, and I got this feeling while hearing the song Point Break, which is a really super serious song because when Bruce gets serious, he gets super serious. But wouldn't that be a good parody for, what is, what is the Keanu Reeves movie? It's Point Break. Oh, it's, oh yeah, so the Springsteen song is Point Blank and a parody song about the Keanu Reeves movie as Johnny Utah, Point Break. I would listen to that. This is, this is where my mind went during that part of The River. You weren't really engaged at that point then. I like the river. You know, let's just put it this way. He played all of the river, which was 20 songs in a row uh, of the river in that order. So there wasn't even the joy of what's he going to play next? Oh, I can't believe it's this one. Still, people would clap in the beginning of songs. You knew it was the river, right? So he played 20 river songs and then he played, I don't know, a dozen encores. And of the 10, my 10 favorite songs in the show, nine were in the encores. But I liked the river. It was good. The other thing I'm thinking of though, this is three and a half hours of just being forced to watch one form of entertainment and really not move too much during it. And that's not bad. That's a lost art. Sometimes you force yourself to look at Gary W. Talent's bass playing. Sometimes you think about the demographics of a Springsteen concert. Like if, listen, we were there and we know the demographics, but if I just said to you, if you didn't know anything about Springsteen, but I said, here's who he is, Here's what he stands for. Here's the composition of his band. Here's the cover of Born to Run. Here's the musical influences. And I'll also tell you that, you know, America's 14% African-American. You know, what percent do you think you would say, if you didn't know, if you weren't at the concert, what percent black fans would Springsteen have, would you say? Would you guess? 3%. Okay, that's 3% higher than I think we actually saw there. So Springsteen is a great storyteller. I do think I do think by playing the river in order, he boxed himself in a little bit. If he wanted to do every song from the river, he wouldn't do them in concert in that order. There's a stretch with three pretty slow songs in a row and it just and it may be, you know, I don't know how you order songs on an album. There's some art to it. You know, I've heard some artists say, I just do them in the order I recorded them in. I think especially The River was literally double albums. So the first song and the last song on each side has a special importance. But for a concert in a row, I don't know, there were just uh, some lulls, some river lulls. And that has an analog to storytelling, too. Like you get a bunch of sad moments, just don't want to put them all in a row, right? Right. I'm actually working on a very, very serious story right now, and the challenge in that story is I have to find two laughs in the middle of the serious content to like let the audience take a breath and reset before I dive them back into the hell that is the story. So yes, it's very you have to be very careful about what you put and where you put it. 
Exactly. And that's that's the kind of insight we're going to get from Matthew Dix, because today it's a really different episode of The Gist. We did a storytelling event a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point, and it was all about science. So I told a story about science, and we're going to hear that. That'll stand in for the spiel. And Frank Kennedy, who was a guy who won our storytelling offer that Matthew here would uh, coach up one of you listeners and a hundred of you or so submitted, and we chose Frank, and Matt was working with Frank. We played those episodes on the show, and this was it. This was the culmination of Frank telling his story. We're going to hear it in its entirety. It's, what, 12, 13 minutes? Before we dive into that, Matt, anything you want to say? I know Andrea wants me to mention that the show that you and Frank performed in was called The Story Collider. It's uh, produced by Ben Lilly and Aaron Barker. Uh, Ben is a physicist turned storyteller, and Aaron is a copy editor, writer turned storyteller, and they have come together. Their goal is to take scientists and to help them uh, convey their technical information in an interesting way. Uh, you were not a scientist and neither is Frank, but both of your stories sort of had some sciencey elements to it. Right. And we should also add that it was Gary W. Talent on bass. Now here's Frank's story. Today is the first day of kindergarten for my son, Calvin. And my biggest fear is that I'll never be able to connect to him. As I walk down the driveway, I know I should be in the moment with him. It's a perfect day, but I'm not. I'm worried about him. I don't quite understand him. Beyond that thought, I'm concerned about how he'll be accepted at school. Will the teachers get him? Will they accept his quirkiness? (sighs) I try to put these heavy-hearted thoughts Aside, I want to model contentment for my son on this beautiful late summer fresh morning. Calvin, on the other hand, is totally into the moment. As we walk down to the bus stop and wait for it, he's stretching his gaze up the street, looking past cars, vans, and trucks for the yellow school bus. And when it pulls up in front of us and stops, my normally quiet boy starts yelling, 23! 23, 23. I am puzzled because the bus clearly in front of us is numbered 105. I look all over the bus for school bus fine print, even examine the license plate, but I find no clues. The driver, a bald man with a white snowy beard, framed by the door, welcomes Calvin onto the bus. We both see Calvin's happiness. He's waited his whole life to go to kindergarten. But I'm consumed by worry. I don't get him. I hope they get him. Calvin is not a typical kid. I know all parents say this, but I can explain. My wife and I live in a three-story twin home in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I have one wife and two boys. (laughs) Calvin is my youngest. When Calvin and I were at our our third floor, I was sitting in my comfortable chair in the third floor office, and the younger toddler version of Calvin was sitting at my feet. He was playing with games, interactive games on his iPad, some puzzles, markers, pages. I was into a good book. It was a good page turner, and from time to time, I'd sort of halfway notice when Calvin left the room 
and kind of sort of halfway notice when he'd come back with a different toy or some crayons. At the end of a particularly good chapter, though, I remember looking down, and I was surprised that he wasn't there. I know that I should be paying better attention to a toddler in a three-story home, but instead I returned to my book and got involved in the rhythm of the paragraphs and enjoyed some more, more of my book. And then suddenly I heard, bam! Now any parent can tell you that bam is not a good noise, especially with a three-year-old in a three-story house. But I can assure you on this day, Calvin was not hurt. I was. Bam! I immediately looked down at my foot because that's where the pain was. Calvin had dropped a gallon of milk on my toes. Instantly, I wonder, where did he get a gallon of milk from? It's obvious I know the answer from our refrigerator on the ground floor in the kitchen. My pain, which was then turned to curiosity, turns to admiration. Admiration for Calvin's feat of strength, for he carried a gallon of milk, about a quarter of his body weight, up two flights of stairs and across several rooms. No wonder he dropped it when he got to my toes. I carried the milk down because I realized something obvious. He's thirsty. He wanted a glass of milk. And as I carried it downstairs, it was heavy, but it wasn't the only heavy thing I was carrying. As I poured the cup, I knew something, something I already knew, something I didn't want to confront. Calvin isn't typical. A typical kid would have asked for milk, said they were thirsty, used some words. In this instance, Calvin was not typical. Calvin is not neurotypical. After an array of doctors and experts, my wife and I learned for sure that Calvin lives firmly on the autism spectrum. His major deficit is delayed speech. It's a challenge for him. Uh, while his peers are speaking in full sentences and responding to questions, Calvin speaks in a phrase or two, single word or less. No time is this more evident than when his cousin, my sister's youngest visits from a few states away. David was born in the same month and year as Calvin, just a couple weeks younger. Yet when he comes to my house, he jumps on my lap, tells me stories about his day or movies that he's watched. He's able to giggle and sneer at my quips and laugh and smile. He, he's a bundle of boyish noise and energy. He's a delight, yet the inevitable comparisons to Calvin are stark. My sister and other parents try to comfort us by saying, it must be so nice to have such a quiet boy. But Calvin's mind is not quiet. Calvin is always observing and working. Before kindergarten, it was like he was cramming for a final. He was studying shapes and letters and numbers, uh, mostly on an iPad with apps on shapes and letters and numbers and animals and phonics. He even explored his older brother's apps with more sophisticated, simple machines, U.S. presidents, flags, music, math, and more. And when he takes a break, it's to watch educational television shows. 
He'll watch Sesame Street, Super Y, Thomas the Tank Engine, Dinosaur Train. And when I try to connect with them after watching these shows with them, I ask Calvin, what did you learn? And he always says, this show was brought to you by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and viewers like you. Thank you. This uh, rote repeating is common with autistic children. It's complex speech, but not his own words. Calvin's language is more stark. A phrase, a word, or less. It twists me up not being able to communicate with him, not being able to have a conversation. I can't find a way to connect with him. I become just like a detached scientific observer of my boy. The boy who is an observer. Like every day when we'd go to the bus. Bus 105 would pull up. The driver would open the door. Gavin would say, 23, 23. And I had no idea what he, what he, what he was thinking. It happened day after day. I, I did finally solve this minor number mystery, but it took me too long. One day, Calvin got on the bus, and it was pulling away, and I realized that the educational app we were looking at that morning and the bus driver had something in common. The bus driver, the bald man with the white beard, looked exactly like Benjamin Harrison, the 23rd president of the United States. Maybe Calvin thought the driver was Benjamin Harrison, the 23rd president of the United States. That's probably why he was so content. But when I had this aha moment, I couldn't share it with Calvin because he was on the bus as it was turning the corner out of sight. Then one day, Calvin came home from one of those mysteriously scheduled half days that elementary calendar seemed to have. <laughs> he and I walked to the driveway and I asked him, where would you like to go to lunch? He heard me, I think, but no response. I tried again. This time, I offered suggestions, nearby places like McDonald's, Wendy's, Subway, a local deli, a couple pizza joints, and other places. This time, I was sure he heard me, and he was thinking about it. The, um, the language, I, cu I, couldn't get, I couldn't figure out how, what he was thinking, but he turned, and he, had, he twisted his lips into a little half smile. And he turned to me and said, five, five, five. And then his expression changed into one of, his, of a teenager where he looked like he was the smartest one in this conversation. He was right. I didn't know what he wanted. This is a terrible feeling the parents of the autistic have, not being able to respond to their needs. Like when your child is bawling or visibly scared, you don't know what to do. The other night, my wife put my usually joyful boy to bed, but he was crying and sobbing. And she could neither console him because she didn't know why he was sad or what was going on. I wanted to figure this out. I needed to connect with Calvin. And I pushed my brain into hyper-problem-solving mode to figure out what he meant by 555. I said it out loud to buy some time. Five, five, five. And then I extended my thoughtfulness by saying 555. And then three things came to mind. 
the first thing I did was I translated 555 into presidents. But James Monroe, Monroe, Monroe didn't mean anything at all. Next, I thought about our local Chinese restaurant, a favorite, with its numbered menu items. But I dismissed that because it had no more than 60 or 70 items. Finally, I thought about the time where Calvin scripted that's when you repeat, just like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, things he hears on TV. He scripts it from road. He scripted the Subway sandwich jingle. It was cute the first few times, but when he got to the 790th time saying, five, five dollar, five dollar foot long, it, it got pretty annoying. <laughs> I thought this was a brilliant idea, but I dismissed it because... We rarely ate there. I needed to figure out what he was thinking. I needed to be connected to him. I wanted to be connected to him. Every fiber of my body craved to be connected to him. I looked into his brown eyes and I thought about the last time we were in the car together where he was studiously studying the passing landscape. He was calling out numbers. And then I got it. I knew what he wanted. I cracked his code. I turned to Calvin and said, you want to go to Wendy's, right? I said it with confidence. He said, yes. <laughs> he has a way of saying Y-E-S like symbols crashing softly. When we drive in the car, Calvin often calls out address numbers. And somewhere in the back of my noodle, I realized that our local Wendy's was at 555 West Lancaster Avenue. I had passed this Wendy's over a thousand times, but I never noticed its address until this awesome boy taught me to see more than I usually do. We had a nice lunch. We didn't talk much, but I wondered what he would teach me next. Well, I think Frank did a really good job. I think you talked to him afterwards that he got a lot out of it. He put a lot into it, but he got a lot of a lot out of it. What what were your impressions of his performance and his story, Matt? Well, I think the most impressive thing about Frank's story was the way he built in stakes, both overarching stakes throughout the entire story and little moments of suspense to keep us moving along. So there was the idea that there's a father trying to communicate with a son that he can't communicate with. And that was sort of like the big worry that we had throughout the entire story. But throughout it, there were questions like, what was the, the 23 that um, Calvin was shouting out? And why was Calvin crying that night when his mother was putting him to sleep? There was just those moments that carried us through to the end. He really constructed that well. The one thing I would say, the difference between putting it on the radio slash podcast and live, there were a couple long pauses live, and it wasn't so bad because maybe at first the audience said, is he getting choked up? Maybe they decided, oh, he's, he's lost his place, but the audience is with you and it's fine live. This kind of counts as dead air on a podcast, so that hurts more in this form than that one. Yeah, and the, so if Frank is going to work on something, the thing that I would challenge him to do is his story was very memorized. And when you memorize your story exactly as Frank did, the danger is you have no flexibility. 
You have no ability to recapture the story if you've lost the thread. And you don't have the opportunity to sort of take advantage of a moment where an audience might react in a way and you realize, hey, they really liked that. Maybe I can do more of that in my story. So he, he doesn't give him the flexi he doesn't give himself the flexibility that a storyteller might have if they are telling a story more off the cuff, which is actually something when we hear your story, that's your talent is your story comes across very natural and unrehearsed. Yes. And I think, you know, I'll blow the whistle on myself. Th that is the double-edged sword in that there probably could use some more structure and memorization. So anything else you want to say about my story going in? Well, I guess the thing that I would tell people to listen for in your story, the thing that Mike could work on to improve this story or future stories, you have a hard time talking about yourself you very much just fall into the reporter role. If we were going to work on this story some more, the goal of this story really should be to bring forth a part of yourself rather than sort of a romp that shows us how you found out what happened in the Superdome. So maybe the story could begin with uh, you realizing that maybe NPR isn't the right place for you. And I've actually had a conversation with one of your friends who talked about how there was a time when basically everyone thought it was crazy that you were NPR because you should have had your own show. Because my talent lay in denying power to large athletic venues in the South. Right. Yeah. So if your story had arced out in that way where you began the story as, I might not be in the right place for what I am good at. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the story, you had discovered this amazing thing that you're naturally curious about. And NPR said, we're not really interested in this, Mike. That could have been sort of like a, a signal that it was your first step sort of out of NPR and towards Slate. So it would be a story more about yourself and less about the Superdome. That would be a great story, but kind of fictional. But anyway, <laughs> let's listen to what I did say, because I know you just listeners, what you need is more of Mike talking. Here's, here's some of that. Super Bowl 47 in New Orleans was covered by 5,156 members of the media. Among these members of the media were an Austrian, not Australian, an Austrian, how does one pronounce that? Austrian, yes. An Austrian journalist who wore lederhosen and a gold crown. I get the lederhosen, the crown, maybe to evoke the Austrian-Hungary empire. There was a Mexican journalist who wore one of those silver ma uh, wrestler masks, Lucador. There was another Mexican journalist who dressed as a clown, bright red hair, orange shoes. He went by El Trapo. Could not speak, speak English, but that's okay. There was a uh, journalist from Vice who covered Media Day while high on LSD. To be fair, I assume most journalists from Vice are high on LSD, but this guy disclosed it. The strangest member of the media there to cover the Super Bowl was the guy sent by National Public Radio, who happened to be me. National Public Radio, an outlet whose listeners are more interested in the habitat of the Raven disappearing than the Baltimore Ravens, 
who are playing the San Francisco 49ers. Now, that was media day. They like to, every year they set a record, and this was 2013, Super Bowl 47 in New Orleans, and every year they set a record with how many uh, members of the media they credential. The actual game, you know, 80% of those they don't let in, but it's almost 1,000 members of the media that they do let in. And if you are part of the network that paid all, those, all that money to broadcast the game, you get good seats, but everyone else, the rest of us, sit in the auxiliary press box, which is a multisyllabic way of saying way, way, way the fuck high up in the Superdome. So there we were in the auxiliary press box, and the game was going on, and the Ravens were beating the 49ers. And all of a sudden, we're actually kind of gradually in one corner of the field, a bank of lights went out, and I noticed that, but I didn't know what to think. And then another bank of lights, and soon almost all the lights in the Superdome went out. I was listening to an AM radio. They didn't know what to make of it. There was the TV feed. Those guys didn't know what to make of it. Play stopped on the field. If you're familiar with American football, play often stops on the field. But this was clearly not meant to be. So, as the lights were dimming, a light inside of me went off. Wait a minute. You're a reporter. You should figure out what's going on. Now, as I said, there were thousands of people there who were other reporters all sitting around me in the auxiliary press box, and I was way up high, and I knew the answer to what the heck was going on was way down low. New Orleans, like the Alamo, does not have basements, but they got to have a ground floor, and somewhere on the ground floor, I don't know, in my head, was a room marked power room, and near the power room, I could find out what was going on. But I also knew that there was going to be just a crush of my peers trying to figure this out, so I quickly gathered my belongings, and I tried to make my way down to this imagined power room. Now, of course, because all the power was out, the elevators weren't working. There wound up being 20 people stuck in those elevators for hours. The escalators weren't working, and to make matters worse, all the people who were uh, sitting there watching the game were now in the hallways drinking Bud Light, and no, that's just it, lots of Bud Light. So... The Superdome also does not have any connecting walkways, so I have to find my way down one flight of stairs, down an old escalator, around where the elevator should have been, nudging aside these Baltimore and San Francisco people drinking their Bud Lights, trying to beat the other journalists there to figure out what's going on. On the way there, I see Jim Gray. He's a sports reporter, but he's going the other way, and he's talking on his cell phone about Joe Flacco's passing accuracy, which is weird. Why isn't he talking about what's going on with the power? So I get down to the bottom floor of the Superdome, and there, as if it were a movie where in the first draft they had the real name of what would be on the power room, but then someone said, nah, you'll confuse the audience. Just call it the power room. It literally says power room. And I'm saying to myself, all right, what's the NFL going to do? Are they going to set up a podium? Is there going to be a, an ad hoc briefing? Who's going to be here? Where's everyone else? And I look around and I see that outside the power room, try, having the same thought I did of the thousands of journalists there, there are exactly three other journalists. One is a local uh, CBS affiliate, uh, New Orleans reporter. One is a blogger. And one's Sal Palantonio from ESPN. Now, I don't know if you watch ESPN. Sal Palantonio is great. Like, if Terrell Suggs has a shoulder injury and doesn't practice, Sal knows that. Sal will tell you that. But I'm just kind of curious that Sal is on the beat of why the power has gone out. 
So I see the power room, and then, as if to orient me further, to help me along, there is a guy who has just emerged from the power room wearing an orange jumpsuit. So I know he's either escaped from the Danamora Correctional Facility in Clinton, New York. I guess I had foresight, because that would happen three years later. So, so I knew he was an ex-con, or he was wearing maintenance. This is the guy who knows why the power went out. There are only three other reporters there. We all kind of go up to him and start asking him a question. And the NFL, the NFL flag says, no, 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 he can't answer the questions. So the guy kind of walks away. And the three other reporters, they walk away too. And so I'm watching the guy, the only guy who knows why there's power out in the Super Bowl. It's now going on for about a half an hour. He, I shit you not, gets a bicycle and starts biking out of the Superdome. <laughs> so I trot after him and I have my recorder. I'm like, hey, can you tell me what happened? He said, yeah, there was a, uh, there was a circuit breaker and it was supposed to go off, but it, most of the problem was that it takes 20 minutes to reboot. So it did what it was supposed to do. It gives me a little bit of a quote. He says, I can't talk. They don't want me to talk, but here's my number if you have any questions. I'm like, that's great. This is, I pretty much have the scoop of the Super Bowl. <laughs> now, maybe a reason that I'm so intent on figuring out why the power went out is that Seven, eight years prior, I was there during Hurricane Katrina. I wasn't there the day the hurricane hit. I flew in the next day. I was there when the levees broke. And I, I was at the Superdome after it was evacuated. I was at the convention center. I had documented a lot of infrastructure failings in New Orleans. And I thought this was a really important question to get to. So I had this guy's name. I go back up. Interesting things happen in the game. San Francisco mounts a comeback. It does not take. I go to my hotel and I tell the, uh, what's called the national desk at NPR. You got to call this guy. This guy has the secret to why the uh, Superdome went black today. And they do, to their credit, they give him a call or two, they leave a message. But what NPR really wants from me is, you know, tell me about that fourth quarter stance. Tell me if there was a pass interference on that last play of the game. I'm like, well, what about the questions about the Superdome? It's like, yeah, you know what? It's a little complicated and that's not really what our audience wants. I guess I console myself with the fact that there are I, I did better than 5,152 of the journalists who were credentialed to cover the Superdome, but really, there were just no answers given. There was just an air of permeating incuriosity about this extremely important subject. I do not think of myself as a scientist, but in that moment, when I was investigating, I was, I was Copernicus, I was Marie Curie. I was Sal Palantonio. <laughs> but I could not get NPR to bite. I could not get really anyone interested. The, N the NFL put out a press release that just basically said, yeah, it wasn't terrorism, go along your day. And no one really cared. It kind of shocked me. Now, I, I followed up on the stories. Eventually, uh, New Orleans hired an expert. They, the expert looked into it. Do you guys want to know what really happened and why there was a backup? Of course you do. You paid money to see people talk about science. So here is, I have the official explanation for why the lights went out in the Superdome. When a relay detects a current monitored by the current sensors in excess of the trip setting for more than two milliseconds, the relay arms and the timer begins if normal current resumes defined in the instruction manual as 3.5 amps or greater. I'm not going to go on. It was pretty technical, and no one really understood or sought to understand what it means. But I figured out 
I read a little bit more. I kept doing a little more reporting on it. And I found out that the Superdome can take 1,100 amps. And there were some events before the Super Bowl. There was a couple of, uh, there was the New Orleans Saints game. There was the Sugar Bowl where the amps got up to about 480. And so out of caution, the Super Bowl, the Superdome and the NFL decided to get this thing called a relay. Essentially, it would uh, break the circuit if need be. I don't, you know, look, I'm a sports journalist. I know Christian Ponder. I don't know Transponder. Christian, that's an obscure reference to a guy who used to be quarterback back for the Minnesota Vikings. I know, I know fast breaks. I don't know circuit breaks. Okay, fine. But you know, I thought it was important to know, wasn't it? I'll explain to you what this really means. They went and bought this thing because they were worried there would be too many amps flowing into the Superdome. You know, Beyonce was doing a halftime show and everything. So how this reacts is if they see that they, or, or if the, uh, the relay switch senses that there's too much flow, it kind of goes like this, <gasps> for two milliseconds. Now, if the flow subsides, it says, okay, calm down. But if it confirms that there's too much flow of amps, it goes, <gasps> boom, and then it shuts everything down. And then it takes 20 minutes to uh, start back up again. So in a way, some of the next day stories and what the guy in the orange jumpsuit was telling me were right, that what was supposed to happen happened. Most of the delay was getting it back online after the circuit broke. But deep in the text of what New Orleans and what the NFL commission was this fact, that the relay, the circuit breaker, was, had factory settings to make it go huh, at about 400 amps. And like I said, the Superdome could take 1,100 amps. So what we really found out is no one sought to reset the factory settings of this extremely important huh, relay. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the official explanation in terms of switches and circuits and amps. But the meta explanation was a thing that I pondered. That's not a reference to a Vikings quarterback. But it was a thing that actually made me a little bit of, among other things, kind of influenced me to get off the sports beat and into the beat of talking about like the real world, which is this. We want our stuff to work. And when our stuff doesn't work, we say, why? We demand to know why, right? Why aren't the trains running on time? Why isn't that water in Flint, Michigan potable, right? Why isn't this bridge standing? Why aren't our games being played? But then, as soon as the games go back to being played, we stop asking why. And I do think, to some extent, we forget that we even asked in the first place. Thanks. <laughs> All right, so if I had to critique myself, this is the first time I've heard it since I did it. Look, I knew my problem would be that storytelling sounds like, oh, it's just telling a story, but it's not. It's a structure and it's an arc and it's where did you go? And I don't know that I went anywhere. I don't know. I tried to inject that in there. I also tried to inject the science in there, and that wasn't such a failure. But I don't know that really I learned, grew, changed, or did anything fundamental, uh, had a fundamental shift in my personage. Yeah, and I think... You know, once again, it's just, it really is the person that you are who is more interested in the world around you and less interested in the world inside you. You know, storytelling demands, unfortunately, a degree of narcissism and self-centeredness that, uh, while I hate to 
compliment you in any way. I believe you lack both of those things to a high degree. So I think you're always going to be looking to talk about um, the outside world and less about the inside world. Or at least uh, I like talking about my observations rather than my feelings. Let's at least say that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, any specific cuts or changes? I think there were a couple times because it was off the cuff. I might have, well, I couldn't pronounce Austrian. That was the first word. Get that better. But uh, I think there were a couple times where maybe I was a step and a half ahead of the audience and maybe even myself. So I could have explained that more. Yeah. There were moments where you suffer from the curse of knowledge. So, for example, the Christian Ponder reference, I believe I was the only person in the theater that night that got that joke. So you, you would want to cut out things that are going to exclude large segments of your audience. See, to me, that's pandering. Ponder stays. <laughs> and there are moments where you have non sequiturs, which I know, like the way your mind works, they're really hard to avoid, but you want to avoid those in storytelling as well. You know, it's funny. I've been listening to a lot of Donald Trump, and he does the same thing. Like people sometimes say he's this great off-the-cuff speaker, which he is, but then people sometimes say he has this word salad. And I think maybe good off-the-cuff speakers of a certain style, I don't know, New Yorkers who say the word huge, don't always connect the dots as best they can because there's a lot going on in their head and they've got to keep it straight. And when they convey a point, they think they're getting across and their audience likes them. So what I'm saying is I'm declaring myself for president and I currently lead in the South Carolina polls. Oddly, I'm more comfortable with you as our Republican nominee than the current state of the Republican Party. All right. Matthew Dix, getting all political on our ass. Thank you. So, is there anything else you want to say about any of these stories or uh, science? No, I, I actually, I'd say that uh, you and Frank were excellent. And sincerely, I thought you were both uh, excellent. You know that I run a show in Hartford. We would love to have you. And if you wanted to go to a place like The Moth and um, compete, I think you guys would do well. I really think that both of you uh, did a great job. Matthew Dix, storyteller extraordinaire. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Mike. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the GIST producer, needs to push over and move those big feet. Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, got two things when he took the position. Union card and a wedding coat. Andy Bowers, as chief content officer of the Panoply Network, he's often tasked with driving all night just to buy you a new pair of shoes. <laughs> the gist, we work five days a week, girl, loading crates down on the dock, and we take our herd, and we take our her, yeah, and we take our heart, I can't say. <laughs> the gist, when the foreman calls time, we already got Friday on our mind, which is actually the case now. We'd like to thank a generous grant by David Golder, who provided this office the impetus for tickets, actually introduced me to Matthew Dix. He's really the man behind the man. He's that foreman who calls time. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.